Hello, and welcome to Grace Church Vienna. For this Sunday, we have Nathan Johnson with us for the first time, and he will take us through a passage in 1 Peter 2. There we will learn more about Christ being the cornerstone, and what does it mean that we as Christians are living stones. As Christ is building the church, how does this bring unity among us, and how can we be part of the priesthood and kingdom of Christ in order to have the same eternal citizenship, no matter of our background and previous life? Well, let's listen to Nathan now to find out more. I am Nate Johnson. Uh, my lovely wife Bethany is right there in the gray sweater. You can say hi to her. Um, we have two little daughters. Uh, Ellie is five and Maya is oh, six. You're right. Yeah, get in the eye there. Uh, Ellie is six and just started first grade. Uh, Maya is three. She'll be four at the end of next month. And um, we've lived in Austria for seven years, almost seven years. Um, eight? Are you kidding me? Oh, my goodness. Calendars, numbers, yeah, I don't, yeah, that's my thing. But anyway, almost eight years now, that, that time really goes. Um, and we are with a missions organization called World Venture, uh, which is just kind of a mid-size uh, church planting and missions organization from the U.S. Um, I'm from Minnesota originally. My wife is from Connecticut, but the last seven years we've lived here in Austria. Uh, we're also partnered with the BEG. Uh, and we did our first couple of years in the Meidling Church in the 12th district, uh, learned German there and did an internship. And for the last almost four years now, we've lived uh, in Geosdorf, which is just, in German we say a cat's jump. I think a stone's throw in English is my favorite little expression. Just a stone's throw across the border from Vienna, and uh, we are planting a church. So cross light... Oh. It was there just a second ago. Uh, Cross Light is the name of our church. And uh, we are the last three U-Bahn-Stationen on the U-1. Uh, so if you head north from Steffensdom and you think about Adeklarestrasse, Großfeldsiedlung, and Leopoldau, um, if you draw a circle around that, there's about 25,000 people that live there. Uh, and if you think about BEG churches north of the Danube, uh, you have Floydsdorf, where we are currently serving as we prepare and get ready to launch out as Crosslight, uh, is on the west, uh, like Brunerstrasse north. Um, and then you have Kagran and uh, Seestadt. Um, and right in the middle is kind of this hole. And so that's where we see the Lord leading us to plant a church. Uh, in the meantime, we serve at Floydsdorf, which is where we got to know Gunther and Mallory while they were... Um, doing their internship there, um, and yeah, we're just really blessed to be with you this morning. It's really wonderful to see such a family experience, such a wonderful church that, I don't know, you guys are really vibrant. I'm feeling uh, just how God is, is working among you. It's it's really exciting to, to get the chance to, to share with you this morning. Um, so, um, let's turn and look at uh, the God together. Um, the text that I've chosen this morning is out of 1 Peter chapter 2. It's a text I've been marinating in for a while uh, and thinking through um, and wanted to pull some pieces out and, and discuss them together. First um, Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 4 through 10 is what we're going to look at this morning. So... Uh, 
Let's read it together. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying a stone, or behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, a rock, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now people. Mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful that through faith we have access to a new citizenship, a new belonging, a new identity. And we thank you that you are the central cornerstone that we can cling to. Amen. So, get this passage in First Peter 2 together. Um, I am it's kind of expository preaching, so the chance to look at a text verse by verse and walk through it, understand um, what the text, what Peter is saying in this context, what the author is saying to the original audience, and then what that says to us. So we want to look at what this passage tells us about Christ and what this passage tells us about the church. We want to look at the various images that Peter uses to talk about both Christ and the church, to talk about who Jesus is and who we are. And then we want to ask the question, what truths do these images communicate? How do they better help us understand our position, our role, and our mission together? We want to look at these images and see what the Lord would be telling us this morning. So it's a little bit difficult because Peter doesn't write in a normal kind of structure like Paul. Uh, Paul is very A, argument B leads to C, leads to D. He's dot, 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 which for many of us uh, that come from maybe a little more Western background, that that line of, um, okay, you know, uh, a tree is in a forest, and that, you know, and and, and A, B, C, all the way through, that's how we think, is often very linearly. Um, Peter is writing in a little bit more of an ancient Near Eastern context, and a little bit more of an ancient Near Eastern thought pattern. Um, And so he... He writes in a little more cyclically. He writes a little, he's thinking a little bit more in circles. And so, um, a lot of times we're going to see how just in these six or in these eight verses, 
um, a context that, or some uh, a concept that he mentions. Um, it isn't just mentioned first and then built upon, but it's repeated and comes back again. And so because of that, I want to organize the text maybe a little bit more different, differently than we would normally do it in terms of saying, well, let's look at these few verses first and then go from there. Um, and instead, I want to look at it uh, in terms of uh, what is this text saying about Christ and what is the image that, that Peter is applying to Christ before then we go and look at what are the images that Peter applies to us as the church. And so the first thing is Peter's making a statement about who Christ is, and he's saying that Christ is the stone. Um, one of my favorite, oh, we can go, yeah, right here. Um, one of my favorite classes at my undergrad, uh, my, my um, uh, bachelor's degree was in Messianic prophecy. I did a, a, a biblical studies degree, and, and I was able to take a class called Messianic Prophecy, uh, we looked at a lot of the Old Testament and the promises that were given about who Christ would be when he was to arrive. Uh, God was speaking through prophets to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, um, and he gave all of these really wonderful promises. And then, bam, Christ arrives and fulfills to a T every single one of those um, promises. And if you're looking for something that will strengthen your faith, Messianic prophecy will do that to you. It will remind you of what God has done. A lot of this happens through images. Uh, we talk about uh, that, you know, Christ is uh, the Lion of Judah. And so then we can trace that through and say, okay, you know, where in the Old Testament is, um, is there a promise about a lion that will come or a person that will come that will be the Lion of Judah? Um, and then Christ comes and, and fulfills that as a kingly role. Um, or we look at, starting even in Genesis chapter 3, there's the promise to the serpent um, that a seed will come, an offspring, I think in, in the ESV is what it says. Um, the seed, that there will be enmity between uh, the, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And that he, singular, the seed, will crush your serpent head but you will strike his heel. And then we can take that image of the seed and we can trace it through the Pentateuch and see how that expands itself and what that promise means and see how Christ is the seed, is that image. Um, or even, I, Bjorn mentioned it just a minute ago, John, the Gospel of John, Christ so often makes these I am statements that lead towards his divinity, that lead towards who he is as God, um, but he says, I am the bread of life, which, of course, reminds us of the manna that the people of Israel ate in the wilderness. Or, or uh, I am the living water, Jesus says, at a uh, Jewish celebration that is about water. Jesus stands and says, I am the door, or I am the shepherd. Um, the purpose of these images is to give us a visual representation of a theological and timeless truth about who God is and how he acts. Um, they're compact. They're easy to understand. And they communicate a lot of information. They're also relatable. Um, many of these images were tied to everyday life, tied to what these people did on a daily basis. Um, things that people would intrinsically understand. Um, I know a, a, a guy in the U.S. that um, 
is a dairy farmer. He, he farms cows. And um, the way that he loves his animals as a farmer is really special. He really takes care of them. And so when, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, even though I don't know any shepherds, and I've only seen sheep maybe every so often, I know and understand what that means for Jesus to be a good shepherd, what it means for him to take care of his flock and what that image communicates. Um, Even here, living in Austria, living in a wine-growing region, um, we understand when when Jesus says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. We walk through the vineyards and see tactily, we see physically in front of us what that image means. So oftentimes these images also tie together the Old and the New Testament. Uh, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so oftentimes these images are related to the Old Testament and to the stories themselves. When Jesus, when um, John looks the um, John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, "Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the takes away the sin of the world." Um, the Lamb of God ties into that Old Testament sacrificial system. So this image is tying old and new together, tying the people of Israel and their worship of God together with Christ and his fulfillment of that image. So images in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, Peter in our text in 1 Peter chapter 2 is applying an image to Christ. He says, as you come to him who is a living stone rejected by men, but precious and chosen in the sight of God. He applies the image of, of this stone to Christ. And then later on in the text, we see in verse, verses 6 through 8, he then quotes three Old Testament passages that undergird or that affirm this statement of Christ is the stone. So it makes sense for us to look at these three Old Testament texts then uh, quickly together. Two of these quotes that Peter is using make his first point to reinforce his first statement about who Christ is, and they're both from Isaiah. Uh, okay, here's the here's the three quotes. Keep click again. There we go. Isaiah twenty eight sixteen is the first one. Um, let's give our Bibles a little bit of a workout and flip over to there really quick. Um, just a little bit about the book of Isaiah, just to give us some context to think about what, what is happening in these passages. Um, we think about Isaiah a couple of times a year, right? We think about it at Christmas time. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Uh, we think about prophecies like that. The virgin will conceive and bear a child. Um, oftentimes we think about Isaiah when we think about missions. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6 here am I, send me, Lord, I'll go. Um, a lot, But I think in terms of the, the narrative, the story of the book of Isaiah, it's not something we're often thinking about. Uh, the book is full of tension. There's so much going on in the history of the people of Israel. The people of Israel are standing right before being sent into exile, being sent out of the land and being punished for the uh, their their. Uh, disbelief and being punished for for their not trusting God um, and for worshiping idols instead of instead of God, um, and so Isaiah is standing and there's these hard-hearted people, hard-hearted leaders, and Isaiah is prophesying 
to these leaders, trying to get them to understand um, what God wants to say to them in that moment. But in the mean, in the middle of that, oftentimes then these just wonderful, exuberant, messianic moments occur where it, it looks forward to Christ at the same time that we're talking about what is happening um, to the people of Israel uh, right before the exile. So this huge global powers, there's the Assyrians in the north, there's all of this fear and what is going to happen, um, all of this going on. There's also a lot of odd images. Um, if you look at the children that Isaiah has, he names his kids very strange things sometimes. Um, one of his children, I think, is called Not My People, which, imagine naming your child. Um, but all of his kids' names have meaning and is, is actually a sign and a symbol to the people of Israel at that time. Um, there's also a, a three-year process that's mentioned in the book of Isaiah where uh, Isaiah's wardrobe choices would not be appropriate and acceptable for me to do here on a uh, later on. But um, so some of these strange images that we kind of struggle with to understand in terms of the book of Isaiah, but then we also have these um, existential tension going on in the people of Israel. And into that, then we have these three texts uh, that Peter grabs onto. The first one is Isaiah chapter 28. Uh, that's Jeremiah. There we go. Isaiah chapter 28. Here we go. Start in verse 14. Isaiah is prophesying, Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. One thing to think about with scoffers, it's not just people that go, oh, come on. It's people that look at God and say, well, oh, come on. Do you exist? Are you really there? So when, he, when we say scoffers, it's not just someone that's incredulous generally, but it's someone that looks at God incredulously. So therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. It's kind of an insult to start with. Because you have said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies, for, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord to you. So we know what the rulers have done. They've said that we've made it a covenant, whether that's, there's a couple of different interpretations of what that could mean, but probably it means going to Egypt and to another national power and saying, hey, will you guys protect us? Hey, the Assyrians are coming. Will you help us? Um, because you have made lies your refuge and in falsehood you have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a test stone, a precious cornerstone of sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. So that's the first quote that Peter uses. He's saying, Christ is this stone. And then he points back to this verse in this context and God promising that he will put a cornerstone, a place of trust for those that believe, but for those who don't believe, a, st uh, a, a stone of um, testing, 
So, the second Isaiah text is in Isaiah chapter 8. If we go to that same context, same conflict, same anxiety that is happening, in Isaiah chapter 8 we see, and I'm from the text a little bit, I'm, I'm, I'm goofing with the order, but it, it, it makes sense because of the context. So, Isaiah chapter 8, um, can you two more up there? Yeah, there we go. 814. Uh, And we'll start in verse 11. Verse 12. Do not call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both the houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So we have God himself is the stone then. And we have the stone that God is going to put in Jerusalem, both as a place of a foundation for those that believe a sanctuary, but then a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, to those that do not believe. So Peter quotes both of those Isaiah texts, and then right in the middle we have this very well-known, very quoted text uh, from Psalm 128. 128 really quick, just to round all this out. I know this is a lot of different texts to try and keep. I hope you're keeping this organized in your mind, but let's let's try and do this together. Psalm 128, 118. Thank you. Psalm 119 is a really long one, and then you find 118 right next to it. And verse 22. The stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. In verse 21, right before that, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. David is in a similar situation in Psalm 118. If you look at the verse, the first 10 or 11 verses, enemies are surrounding him, pressure on all sides, fear and anxiety reigns. Verse 12, they surrounded me like bees. That's terrifying. I mean, except honey, but I love, bees are, are, are pretty scary sometimes. They went out like a fire among thorns in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. And then in verse 14, he explodes with wonderful expression of worship. The Lord is my strength and my song. And then all of this worship leading to verse 22, the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. So Peter grabs these three Old Testament texts, two from Isaiah, one from Psalms, knits them together in 1 Peter as the basis for the statement that Christ is the living stone, rejected by men, but honored and holy and precious, chosen and precious by God. We could look at Peter, maybe this is... um, a little bit, a little bit overdone to, in terms of conversation with the biblical author. We could look at Peter and be like, "Come on, Peter, are you just 
picking these texts out. Just, okay, you just did a Google search in your, in your, uh, in your scroll for, uh, for stone. And then you found three different texts that talked about stones and you put it all together. And, um, I mean, obviously we believe in verbal inspiration. We believe that this is the word of God, but, um, maybe we could be a little bit incredulous about Peter and say, come on, Peter, what, what, what are you doing here? Um, uh, you know, play the, the little bit of the, the arm ball, our armchair football trainer that uh, there's the armchair quarterback we say in the U.S. But, um, you know, the, after the game, you kind of look at things and say, well, Peter, is this really um, what these texts mean? And, 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 and what are you doing with all this? Um, might be a little more sarcastic than we should be, but um, there's a few things that we should think about. Um, first, the first thing to think about related to this um, is that in the context, especially of Isaiah, but also the Psalms, it's not abnormal to have the story, the narrative that's happening in Isaiah, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it does it's not out of nowhere, but it maybe it can feel for us a little bit kind of out of nowhere, to have show up something that's incredibly focused on Christ, that's incredibly messianic in that moment. So we go from prophecy about what's happening with Assyria and with existential conflict in, in, in Jerusalem. And the promise then goes well beyond the exile and looks, and, and all of a sudden our focus snaps like on a camera. You know, if you're trying to take a picture, all of a sudden, whoa, the distance comes into focus. It was blurry for a second and the foreground was in focus and then snap, all of a sudden the background and you see a big mountain instead of just a person in front of you or something or backwards. Um, all of a sudden, it's not uncommon for that to happen in Isaiah. Um, and so, um, this, is the, this is something that is really, really normal for us when we're, when we're looking at an Old Testament text like that. So Peter isn't just uh, playing with the text and doing whatever he wants. This is something that, that we understand when we look at a, a, a text like First Peter. This is very common. Uh, the second thing for us to understand is that this isn't isolated. This isn't Peter's first time ever mentioning this. And in fact, Acts chapter 4, uh, Peter gives, Peter has just healed a man. So we're thinking about Acts and what's happened here. Uh, we have, uh, you know, Pentecost, flaming tongues of fire, speaking in a bunch of different languages, um, church founded, bam. Um, right after that then, Peter heals a lame man and is taken before the leaders in Jerusalem. And Peter gives another sermon. This is Peter's second sermon in like three chapters, two chapters. And, and what he says, he stands up filled with the Holy Spirit and he proclaims, first, he says, this man Jesus whom you crucified, which, I mean, that has to be filled with the Holy Spirit to be able to look at a bunch of leaders sitting in judgment of him and say, this thing you just did, crucified the Lord of hosts. Um, talk about direct communication. That's kind of the opposite of what we experience sometime here in Austria. Um, but then right after that, he says, the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. So Peter takes that same image from Psalm 118 and think so much of that image, think so much of that in terms of importance, that it will communicate so much to these religious leaders in Acts chapter 4, that he uses, that, that that is one of his main kind of arrows in his quiver to help them understand who Christ is. 
that he is the stone that the builder rejected. So then the last thing for us to think about is Christ used that about himself. Matthew 21, verse 33, Jesus tells the parable of the tenants, um, which is just incredibly direct in terms of him criticizing the Jewish leaders um, and criticizing the people of Israel. Um, And in Matthew 21, Jesus says, Have you not read the scriptures? The stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. So Peter is justified in using this phrase about Christ. Um, In terms of understanding it, there's a couple things that, that it points to related to what does it mean for Christ to be the stone. It means he's preeminent. He's above all things. Christ is chosen and precious. It's repeated twice. Repeated at verse 4 and then again in verse 9 in the quote. Peter think, writes down a part of the quote even before he quotes the verse. So he's repeating chosen and precious. Um, Christ is before all things. He's in all things. Colossians says he's the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. Christ is the center, the cornerstone of our faith. We are a resurrection people. If the resurrection didn't happen, if Christ is a liar, then so are we. And we're in a worse situation than before because we still don't have a solution to the problems of the world. Christ is our stone. He's the cornerstone and the foundation. We sing a hymn that I grew up with. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. He is our cornerstone. He's also a stone of stumbling. For many people that choose to not believe the gospel, Christ is going to be that stumbling stone. Christ is going to be the one that they said, a man came and died and rose again. I don't know that I can believe that. And in reality, I think we, re- we need to, to recognize that, that Christ is the stumbling stone for those that choose not to believe, that choose to reject him. Ultimately, the one they're rejecting is not us or the church um, or even the, the Bible itself. The thing that they're choosing to reject is Christ. That he is who he says he was and that he did the things that he claimed to do. That he is God and man together. I think the challenge for us in that moment is to, in our proclamation of the gospel, as we share with those around us, we need to work really hard to make sure that Christ is the thing that people are stumbling on. That if people reject and, and aren't willing to accept the gospel, that it's not because we've put something else alongside the gospel, said you have to wear these kinds of clothes or act this certain way, um, not say these words or say these specific words. Um, 
consume these specific kinds of products or, you know, sort your garbage in a certain way. We need to make sure that the thing that is being proclaimed, that the thing that people reject is because they've heard and understood the gospel and say, I can't believe that Christ is who he says he was. Not that they reject anything else that we would put alongside that. The other thing for us as we think about what it means for Christ to be the stone then uh, is for us to recognize that our faith lives and dies, hangs completely on that cornerstone. That that is the central tenet and the core of what we believe. And it needs to be so. Our hope needs to be built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So Christ is the stone. We spent a lot of time trying to unpack that. Um, there's a little bit that's said about us in this text as well, that I think in the next couple minutes I, I want to I wanna look at as well. There's three images, and we'll just go through them really, really quickly. Um, but I think that they also uh, tell us a little bit um, about what Peter's trying to say about who we are. Um, he says three things. So he says, Christ is the stone rejected, but then um, verse 5, you yourselves, talking to his readers, like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house. This is the first image about us, that we are living stones. Just like Christ is the living cornerstone, we also are living stones being built up into a spiritual house. If we compare and contrast that with the Old Testament temple, we see a couple of things. The temple was static. It went in a place. If you wanted to go to the temple, let's, you know, got to saddle up your donkey and get going. You know, we got to load up the car and, and, and drive across town. Um, now, we, as the people of God, are the temple. We are the spiritual house that's being built up. One of the things that I think is an advantage for many Austrian churches is that because finances can be difficult and because we're small, um, we don't, we can't often afford the gigantic buildings that are built in the United States. Um, I don't want to say anything about how they choose to build those buildings. I think a lot of the, a lot of the churches that are built in the United States do some really wonderful things in terms of ministry in the community. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're open 24-7. They're constantly doing things. And so I don't think it's wrong. Um, but I think for us, what's wonderful about that, you know, for some of us, it can be a difficult process of, oh, man, where are we going to meet on Sunday? How are we going to afford the rent of where we have, wherever we have to be? Um, but the focus isn't on the building. The focus is on the people of God gathered together the living stones coming together as a spiritual house, a spiritual temple. And I think that's really wonderful that we are forced to have that as a foundation for us, that we as the people of God are the temple where true worship happens. We also need to recognize that the question of who is doing the building the verbs here give us a little bit of a sense of that. It says, as you come to him, and then we have a living stone set aside, 
you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up. English can be kind of weird sometimes. There's a lot of little helping verbs in there and stuff like that. But our being built up is passive. It's not something that I'm doing. As a church planter, I am not the one building this. Grace Church is not built by its leaders. Grace Church is built by Christ. Christ is the one that builds the church. We are being built up. But the verb connection here is as you come to him, you are being built up. So as we come to Christ in worship, he builds us together. The focus is on unity. It's not on us as individual stones. It's the unity of the building. And it's not Christ is building a bunch of tiny little churches out of tiny little stones. Christ is building his church. The unity together. And all of us, despite maybe some of our disagreements on second and third level things, we can have unity with as we're built up together. So living stones into a spiritual house. The next one is kingdom of priests, a holy and royal priesthood. Verses 5 and 9. So, living stones being built up to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. Later on, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. This is a fulfillment of God's original promise and an original design for how he wanted the people of Israel to function. Um, in the Old Testament, Exodus 19, the people of God stand before the Mount Sinai. Ten Commandments. Have you ever seen the video? Charlton Heston, big stone tablets. I don't know anyone knows what I'm talking about. There's an old, old Ten Commandments movie um, this is the context of what we're talking about here. God's original plan in Exodus 19 is that he wanted a kingdom of priests. That there wouldn't be, that, that every individual would have access to God. Christianity is a participatory religion. It's not something that we sit on the sidelines and watch. Um, Gunther and I once went to a, a, a Freundschaftsspiel of uh, at Ernst Hopel Stadium, we went to a, um, a football game. Uh, and it was freezing cold, and it was a lot of fun. Um, but most of the people in that stadium were not playing football on that day. Most of the people in that room were watching football. There was a handful of people that actually got to kick a ball that day. The reality is that we are a kingdom of priests. We are not served by priests and the, the laity that does nothing. We all participate together. You're involved. And what are we doing? What does the text say? To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Sacrifices in the Old Testament were ritualized burning or cooking of meat, grain, oil, and other things. It was this prescribed way in which the people of God encountered God. God said, this is what, how it will happen, and it was very specific. There were sacrifices that happened at specific times of the year, specific uh, 
for specific things that would happen, but it was very prescribed. Bring a dove, bring a goat. Um, it was also uh, supplied the needs of the Levites. They were the, the priest um, tribe, and so they didn't have land to farm, and so the, the sacrifices were also um, something that was how they got their food, how they got their meat was through the sacrificial system. Um, what Peter is saying is taking all of that imagery in his mind from the Old Testament and is saying, now we are, like, before there was this temple, this one place that we all went to to do sacrifices with a priestly class, with the division between the people and the priest would mediate between God and man and would be that individual mark. Peter's saying, that has all changed and now we are all priests. We are also all stones inside of the temple. We are also all offering spiritual sacrifices together. What are those spiritual sacrifices? What does he mean by that? Instead of offering bulls and goats, grain and oil, in the broader context of first see living a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Enduring suffering, standing up under hardship, submitting to authority, whether it's in a work setting, a family setting, suffering for righteousness' sake. All of the things that are pleasing to the Lord are a reaction from the grace that we've received, and they are this offering of these spiritual sacrifices in this new temple, which is the people of the Lord. In the same way that Christ said, I did not come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. The law is fulfilled in an upside-down sort of beautiful, wonderful way through Christ and his church. So, the last one, a people of his own possession. Citizenship. Peter's talking to Gentiles. He's talking to people that did not have Jewish heritage. And he says, you are this chosen race, this royal priesthood, this holy nation, a people of his own possession. Once you were not a people and now you are a people. I don't know how many citizen, different citizenships we have represented in this room. I assume quite a few. Um, and I think that's really wonderful. What Peter is saying is that when we believe in faith, we get a new citizenship, an eternal citizenship. That our identity of what people we belong to is now primarily the people of God. That that is our fundamental identity then. We are a people of his own possession. Once again, we have another purpose statement here. You are a, a, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into light. That you might proclaim. God has taken people from all the tribes and tongues and nations of the world, brought them together to make his people a people of faith, a people that, that, that have access to that, that, that citizenship through faith that we may proclaim the wonderful things that he has done among us.
I want to thank the sister that shared her experiences and, and, and gave a testimony just a couple minutes ago right before I started talking. You proclaimed the excellencies of what God has done in the face of amazing difficulty. You did exactly what this text is telling us to do. And the encouragement is not to just do it among us. In fact, the purpose statement of who we are is that we are all priests and we are all citizens that proclaim. It's not, it's not a switch that you flip. Evangelism isn't something we turn on and then turn off. Oh, this weekend I have to go evangelizing. No, it is a part of who we are as citizens that proclaim. John Piper, in his wonderful book on missions, he talks about let the nations be glad. If you haven't read it, it's really, really, really good. It's been around for a while now, but it is quite, quite good. Um, he says, worship, or he says, mission happens because worship does not. The goal of the church is not mission, but worship. The worship of God. I had a, a former colleague, well, he's still a colleague, he's just not in Austria anymore, and he would say, the choir of those that sing the praises of God is not yet full. And we want the choir to be complete. We want the choir to be fuller and louder and more beautiful. The harmonies woven together from many different backgrounds and tribes and tongues and nations. We are citizens that proclaim we're a holy nation. We're stones built together into a temple where sacrifices are offered. I hope that encourages you this morning. I hope you see a new vision of who Christ is or maybe a different perspective on who Christ is as the stone, the cornerstone, the fundamental reality of our faith. But also for those that don't believe the stone of stumbling. And I hope ultimately that we can recognize that we are priests offering spiritual sacrifices in this new temple. That we are citizens proclaiming together the wonderful things that God does and telling others, hey, look at this. Isn't that amazing? Look at this. Ah, uh, there's a song that I really love, and I'll just quote, close with this quote. It's by a band called the Grey Havens. Um, it's called Far Kingdom. And the first verse goes like this. There is a far kingdom, a ways from here, beyond the storms and the sea. There will be no need of darkness and none for fear when that far kingdom I see. I'm looking forward to seeing that kingdom. I don't know about you. Amen.